Oh my gosh, this is so funny uh, to us. I hope he called him Jaws Quincy Alligator. <laughs> Everybody has a plan so they get punched in the face. That's right. Yeah, goodness. One day you're gonna need to get ten thousand steps a day, and I've got just the idea on how to get there. <laughs> he was a flautist. A flautist. Uh, Lizzo would have liked him. <laughs> Welcome to the Presequential Podcast, where we go from 1 to 45 and under 90 and discuss each president's life, legacy, and little-known facts. I'm Ryan Allward, joined as always by... Blaine Zimmerman. Blaine, how are you tonight? Fantastic. You got your Mariners hat on? As always. Why are you a Mariners fan, by the way? Ken Griffey Jr. Oh, I wouldn't yeah. say that I'm a Mariners fan. You're I like Mariners Ken, hats. You're just a Ken Griffey stan? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm a Ken Griffey stan. I'll accept that. You're listening to episode six of the Presequential Podcast. Blaine, uh, what are we calling this one tonight? The Sun. Mm, the S-O-N. Correct. Not the S-U-N. Correct. Yes. We're talking about John Quincy Adams today. And uh, it was a wonderful read. And by wonderful, I mean very long. It was <laughs> 537 pages long. Tonight we read, well, we didn't just read it tonight, but we read uh, James Traub's Militant Spirit biography on the 6th president of the United States, John Quincy Adams. Our running page tally. Do you have a, do you have a good guess as to where we are here, Blaine? 3,000... Yes. 82. No, 3,508. Wow. Yeah, we're not yet to the 5,000 mark, so cheers to you. And as always, we enjoy a cocktail while we're recording. And tonight, in honor of John Quincy Adams, we are drinking a Sam Adams winter lager. Sam Adams was his second cousin once removed. It was his dad's second cousin. I learned a lot about cousins when I was trying to research. Yeah, yeah. well... This isn't one of the situations where the cousins got married either. No, but we've talked about those before. It happens. A little weird. Uh, Monroe's daughter married her cousin. Was that what it was? Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of people married their cousins. <laughs> Blaine, what do you remember about John Quincy Adams from social studies? That he, that his dad was a president. Mm -hmm. That's it. Yeah. That's the same for me too. And if you look at his portrait, he looks pretty crotchety. He does. He had kind of a cool middle name. He's got his hand on some bills. Yeah. There's a statue in the background. <laughs> it's just great radio. <laughs> it's not radio, it's a podcast. All right, you ready to dive into John Quincy Adams' life, legacy, and little-known facts? Yes. Let's do this. He was born on July 11, 1767 in Braintree, Massachusetts. For context, when he was born, his dad, John, was three years away from defending the British soldiers involved in the Boston Massacre. So he was just a little guy when dad was uh, going to court there in a very unpopular way. He was named after his mom, Abigail's maternal grandfather, Colonel John Quincy. Growing up, John, his dad, was often absent while off serving as a founding father, but he did, as a boy, witness the Battle of Bunker Hill at age eight with his mother, Abigail. Yeah, they just kind of went out and back and watched it, right? Yeah, what do you guys want to do today? Yeah. Well, let's go outside on the farm. But he did, from what we learned in episode two, have a pretty fantastic father. He did. And we'll find that he didn't really follow in those footsteps all that well. No. In February 1778, little John Quincy Adams, and I think let's talk about him as Quincy tonight. Yeah. Let's just, we'll, we'll call him Quincy and Dad John. Was Braintree renamed Quincy or was that a yes. different town? It's, it's, it's current day Quincy, Mass. Okay. Yeah. I couldn't remember if that was the one that was changed or not. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. Like... If they just renamed the town you were born in, Allwart. Allwart. It'd be a little tricky to spell on your envelopes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've had my fair share of bungling of my last name. It's got oh. a, a silent H and a silent D in there, but this I've isn't about... It. I know you have. Yeah. <laughs> 
In February 1778, young Quincy gets to join dad in France, where he is serving alongside Ben Franklin to the French court. By the way, Blaine, if uh, our listeners want to learn more about John Adams, where could they go? Uh, Episode two, scroll up. That's right. Just go right up wherever you get your podcasts at episode two. Two months after turning 11, young Quincy writes his mother about discussions with dad about keeping a journal. And I quote, listen to this quote. This is 11 year old (laughs) writing his mother. Although I still have the mortification a few years hence to read a great deal of my childish nonsense, yet I shall have the pleasure and advantage of remarking the several steps by which I shall have advanced in taste, judgment, and knowledge. End quote. Obviously, he had a lot of friends. <laughs> he probably didn't. If he's over in France just with dad hanging out, I mean, he probably had just a ton of time to read. Well, and his dad made writing very important to the point that even when they were in like stormy waters on a ship he was still like writing in the rain and that was before they had like the astronaut pens so it's probably just smeared all over the place like it can't be that important it's before they had both astronauts and pens oh that's a good point (laughs) two months after turning uh, i'm sorry he started a journal at age 12 Uh, shortly after he wrote that amazing letter to his mom. Uh, His journal would amount to over 17,000 pages over the course of his life. No other president and perhaps no other figure in American history kept a diary as vigilantly as John Quincy Adams. There's really only like two points of the book where they were like, yeah, we didn't really know what happened this month. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like, that's it. Between lunch and dinner, we didn't know what he did that one time. Uh, Around the same time, he leaves Dad, who is courting Dutch financiers in the Netherlands at this point. He goes off to St. Petersburg, Russia, not Florida. I know what you're thinking. Spoiler alert, though, he did have something very important to do with Florida, but we'll get there a little bit later. Uh, He goes to St. Petersburg, Russia to be the personal secretary to American diplomat Francis Dana, and he would stay in Russia for two years and then head over to Britain with dad in 1784. About a year later, in 1785, he returns to Massachusetts and enrolls in Harvard, where he graduates second in his class two years later. This guy's a brainiac. Couple things. Yeah. On his trip back, mm-hmm. he was the personal escort to seven hunting dogs that Lafayette was gifting George Washington. That's right. No pressure, right? Yeah. Yeah. You've got the Marquis de Lafayette saying, hey, before you go, yeah. take these seven uh, hunting dogs over to old George. You talked about Harvard. He, You said he graduated second in his class? Yes. Kind of ridiculous piece in there about Harvard was like their graduation ceremony was just all of the graduates showing off what they learned. <laughs> like they had to get up and like make presentations about Latin. Like yeah. it's not dead yet. <laughs> yet. He also, he spent time uh, trying to court the ladies with his flute. <laughs> I think I missed this part of the book. Yeah. Please, please tell us more. I, I don't want it to be a flute. I want it to be a recorder. He was a flautist. A flautist. Uh, Lizzo would have liked him. Uh, wow. Great was, job. Great in my, job in in my uh, notes, it just says different times. <laughs> I mean, I I never tried it. No, I, I don't know anyone that did. Don't knock it till you try it. Wow did the did the flute win him any ladies? It's meant to be seen. Mm. I don't think. No, he. I don't remember that him serenading Louisa. Maybe those Who's, girls up at, up near Harvard were more into like the oboe or ah. Well, it's possible rap battles. It's. <laughs> 
Oh my gosh. After graduating from Havid, uh, he studies law in nearby Essex County for a couple years. <laughs> Playing the flute, some dude's making fun of him. And then he sees the guy at the diner and he's like, Hey, you like apples? <laughs> How do you like these apples? <laughs> Great Goodwill hunting. My flute reference. got her number. How you like them How apples? How do you like them apples? Oh, man. Oh, man. Also, side note, great movie, Goodwill Hunting. Yeah. So good. Yeah. But that's Do you think that is. that's how he got into Harvard? Maybe he was just filling out equations? He was Will Hunting. Ooh, or that's what he did at graduation. <laughs> they put an equation on a chalkboard, and he solved it, it in was, front of no, everyone. The one that Will Hunting's trying to solve in the movie mm-hmm. was the one that Quincy Adams Yeah, and then somebody up. accidentally erased it, and yep. that's why the guy... Posed it to the class. So great. It's all come full circle. Enter Robin Williams. Can we get back to Essex County where he's studying law for a couple of years before his dad becomes the first vice president? Yeah. So that was something I was thinking about this morning. Was Washington the only president that wasn't a lawyer? Only president or founding, like the founding father generation? No. The only president? I don't mean ever, but like of the first, I don't know, 20. Hmm. Don't think about it too long because I'm pretty sure it's just Washington. Okay. It's kind of crazy. That is kind of nutty. We, I've read ahead a little bit. We have. And today, the president I was reading about, in my notes, it just said, he studied, you guessed it, law. Law. <laughs> Except George Washington. Yeah. Interesting. We'll have to look that up. Even ones that didn't go to school. Wow. We'll, it, we'll talk about it more okay. later. All right. Well, his dad, John, is elected the first vice president ever. Also around this time, Quincy begins to write in his journal about sinking into a very dark depression, which he would fight his entire life. And it's easy to see how he would occasionally slip into despair under the crushing weight of these expectations, both external and internal, of fulfilling his destiny drilled into him since birth. I mean, if John and Abigail Adams are your parents... You're going to have mommy and daddy issues as you grow up. You're going to have an inner ambition, whether you like it or not. Especially with as much of a helicopter as his mom was. She was. Speaking of which, around 1790, 23-year-old John Quincy Adams opens his own law practice and becomes financially independent from mom and dad. Way to go, guy. He also at this time falls in love with young Mary Fraser, who became the one who got away in his life because his mom did not approve of her. Uh, Not necessarily of her, but of the relationship. Mm -hmm. And uh, she would write. She would she would nag at him to break things off with her, which he did. They it, weren't financially dependent of him. No, that's right. In May 1794, a still rather melancholy John Quincy Adams is appointed by dad's boss, President Washington, to become ambassador to the Netherlands and secure and maintain loans essential to the young republic. Dad would often and proudly show his letters to the commander-in-chief. Young as John Quincy Adams was, he really did become a crucial figure in forging the first generation of American foreign policy. In early 1796, while in London on diplomatic work, he meets Louisa Johnson, daughter of American merchant Joshua Johnson. Spoiler alert, she was the first first lady to be born outside of the U.S. They're engaged around the same time that Washington appoints Quincy to become ambassador to Portugal. The couple is married in London in 1797 and are soon whisked off to Berlin, Prussia at that point, where he has been appointed by his dad, who is now president, to become ambassador to Prussia. John's younger brother, Thomas, joins them. Thomas would enjoy Louise's company very much and vice versa because Quincy would often leave part. This was, I did not know this about him. He would often just leave her at parties. He would leave early and just ditch her. (laughs) Just be like, find your way home. But Thomas would be there dancing. So he would be Louise's, his sister-in-law's escort home. But I just thought, it's kind of frosty to leave your wife just at parties. Yeah. Especially in a foreign country. 
So you're like, I'm just, this bores me. You'll figure it out. <laughs> you speak six languages, right? Yeah. As a husband, Quincy was often harsh, condescending, critical, and stern with Louisa, whose health was already fragile when they were married. Louisa expected happiness out of life, while Quincy did not. They would share respect and compassion and occasionally love over the years, but they never really had a fun marriage uh, built on mutual trust and tenderness, to say the least. Uh, not even two weeks after arriving in Berlin, Louisa suffers a miscarriage which shakes both of them, and in the fall of 1800, Quincy and Thomas's younger brother Charles dies in New York City of complications due to alcoholism, not to mention Jefferson defeated Dad to become the third president. As Dad's administration comes to an end, Quincy, Louisa, and their new infant son, George Washington Adams, returns home to America with no idea of his future whatsoever. By the way, Mom and Dad were not too happy with him naming the child after the nation's father and not his own father as he had been named. Is he the one that became the famous historian? Henry Adams, I believe, That's became right, yeah. a famous historian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, his son, I believe. So he comes home, starts his legal practice up again. He gets elected to the Massachusetts Senate, and in 1803 becomes a U.S. senator and joins the ranks of Federalists in Congress and somehow finds time to teach both logic at Brown University in Rhode Island and rhetoric at Harvard. Which, I, it's like, okay. Is that close? Brown is in Providence. Harvard is in Cambridge. Boston. Austin area, yeah, yeah. It's not too far when you're. Well, I guess by car it is. By carriage, carriage, horse. Yeah. Yikes. In 1807, the Federalists essentially boot him when he supports Jefferson's Embargo Act, and he resigns his Senate seat. In 1809, President Madison, at this point, appoints him to become minister to Russia, and two years later to the Supreme Court. Though Quincy declines the seat. It's kind of wild that you could just quit being a senator. Yeah. Just like, I'm done. Yeah. We're, I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah, figure it out. Figure it out. I'm going to go read. Yeah. I've got some writing to do. Yeah. <laughs> Dear diary. <laughs> Today I quit the Senate. They'll miss me when I'm gone. Blaine, you wanted to talk about Louisa having to get from Russia to France, didn't you? Well, one thing, though. Yeah. With his diplomatic appointments, it did seem that back then appointments were almost thrust upon you. You weren't really asked, like, hey, do you want to be... The ambassador to the Hague. Yeah, you just got a letter one day, and they were like, "Congrats! Hey, here's your <laughs> boat tickets. Yeah. Um, you're going to be an ambassador to the Netherlands." Yeah. Yeah. So when he left Russia to go to England in classic Quincy fashion, he left his wife in Russia. <laughs> he left the party. <laughs> See ya. She stayed there with the kids. They were going to school. And then he got the appointment to France. Correct me if I'm getting some of this geography wrong. It's okay. So she has to pack up the kids. And I believe the youngest son at the time was like three or four months old. Okay. Gosh. I may be off on that. Just get in a carriage and go across Europe where there's an active war happening. (laughs) (laughs) So in, in this journey... They end up coming across a bunch of soldiers that are retreating from a battle. Yes, so they're I like this. actively engaged. They see the carriage, stop it at gunpoint, pull her and the baby out, eventually decide maybe it's not a good idea to kill the former American president's son's wife. The, the, the his daughter in law. On yeah. the side of the road. Right. And so they let her go. But it like it just kind of reads like a straight up like damsel in distress. It's pretty crazy. Like, yeah. It's kind of shocking. There's not like a movie about that. That's mm. like 
blown out of yeah. proportion with vampires or something. You would think that she would have like a list of the things to talk about Quincy about when they got back together. Like, do you realize everything that I've done for you? Or maybe she did, and that's why he kept leaving her at parties. <laughs> <laughs> it's like all you do is nag at me about yeah. how I leave He's you. Like, in look, I get it. I left you in Russia. All right. I do remember that she. Uh, in the book, uh, again, James Traub's Militant Spirit, uh, if you want to check it out. She was learning the harp, and in some letter he was just like, you're not really that good. You haven't even learned one song. <laughs> I think like, I put in my notes, I was like, wow, man. <laughs> how hard can it be? I mean, it's yeah. 17 feet tall, and you just you move your fingers on Come on. You don't even know one song. You can't even play chapsticks on the harp. So uh, Quincy supports the War of 1812, and he's influential in the Treaty of Ghent being signed in Belgium in December of 1814. The next year, in May of 1815, Madison appoints him to become ambassador to Britain, in which he negotiated a trade agreement and spent much of his time helping stranded American sailors and POWs. In August of 1817, he is appointed by new President James Monroe, number five, to be Secretary of State. Then he returns home after spending eight years overseas. On top of all the time he spent as a child. Or is that including it? I would say the eight no, years is the diplomatic. It. Yeah, yeah, it's on top. Yeah, he's not spending a lot of time in Massachusetts. Mm-mm. And he's the oldest child, I believe, or maybe the oldest son. I don't think he's the oldest child. I think they had an older sister. Was that Nabby? It's possible that it helped his political career because he couldn't do anything here that would make people not like him. Ooh, that's a good point. Yeah, like he didn't have a track record at home, positive or negative. Mm-hmm. He's doing his thing overseas. Yeah. Hmm, I didn't think about that. So under Monroe, he has a very strong uh, working relationship. He often influences the president's policies, and he respected that Monroe made the final call on major issues. He negotiated the U.S.-Canadian border west of the Great Lakes and was influential in easing British fears over American expansionism. In 1819, he negotiates the Adams-Onis Treaty with Spain, which ceded Florida to the U.S., settling a standing border dispute between the two countries and established the boundaries of U.S. territories through the Rockies and west to the Pacific. So if you've been in Florida or anywhere along the Pacific coast, in a way, I'm just I'm just putting this out there, you've got John Quincy Adams to thank, in a way. He was influential in getting Florida seated and, and all the way yeah. to the Pacific. He actually called that the most important day of his life. Wow. In his diary? Yeah. I want to call it a diary, not a journal. That's fair. Yeah. Did he? The uh, the Adams-Onis Treaty was the best day of his life. I have it right here. In quotes, the most important day of my life. (laughs) Had a cheeseburger at lunch. Uh, (laughs) Uh, Do you want to talk about his 4th of July speech in 1821? Mm -hmm. Well, before that, he rented a house in Boston that belonged to John Hancock. Really? Not Herbie. I was just about to say, it's Herbie Mm -hmm. Hancock. Uh, I didn't know that. That's cool. And he had the whole weights and measures thing. Oh, my gosh. Get into that for a sec, because this dude... (laughs) He was obsessed with the concept that everything should be uh, counted, weighed, uh, measured in the same way. And no one else did. Like, at the time, we were still, like, measuring things by hogshead um, or whatever way we want. Like, how many cheeseburgers per hour, you know. And, uh, I mean, we still do that here. Yeah. But he was like, no, no, no. Like, what if everybody in the world had one way of measuring things? And people were like, you're crazy. He wrote 135 pages. And the appendices to the 135 pages equaled that amount. Gosh. Like, he was 
very detailed. He was obsessed about this. Yeah. So, yeah, his 4th of July speech in 1821 was a real rabble rouser. (laughs) Essentially, he went, like, scorched earth on England, all in on patriotism. Okay. So, basically, while his father predicted the celebration of the 4th of July. Yes. Uh, The 2nd of July, I thought. Right. Yeah. He took it a step further and just invented NASCAR. Mm. Like, he was like... (laughs) I don't know what it is. I don't know what a car is. Yeah. He's like, we're going to... Everything's going to have a flag on it. We're doing it. We're going to scream America stickers all over these cars. England sucks. Mm. Like, he went all in. Yeah. He was... He And people were like, yeah, this guy should probably be the president. We should put him in power. Yeah. That's pretty great. I don't remember reading about that in the book, that John Quincy Adams invented NASCAR. But you heard it here first. The concept of NASCAR, (laughs) yeah. Of what we know it now. Oh, my gosh. This is so funny. Uh, To us. Uh, both, (laughs) Both Quincy and Monroe favored American neutrality in Latin American wars of independence. And in Monroe's annual address to Congress in December uh, 1823, John Quincy Adams' ideas were laid out and became one of the foundational principles of U.S. foreign policy, though it was not coined as the, quote, Monroe Doctrine until 1850. But John Quincy Adams was integral, uh, not just influential, but uh, in this Monroe Doctrine that future presidents would invoke up until, I think, Woodrow Wilson, maybe Teddy Roosevelt, Wilson, around there in in various Uh, degrees. Kennedy... Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, with Cuba. Uh, Adams sought to acquire Texas when he served as Secretary of State, but he argued that because Mexico had abolished slavery, the acquisition of Texas would transform the region from a free territory into a slave state. He also feared that the annexation of Texas would encourage Southern expansionists to pursue other potential slave states, including the island of Cuba, interestingly enough. Well, they were also concerned with the size of Texas. They thought that southern slaveholders would break Texas up into four to seven different states. Hmm. And so they didn't think that Texas would stay Texas. They thought now they're going to be able to break this up into however many states they want and continue to have all this power mm. in the South because they would, instead of gaining one state, they're gaining like seven. Obviously, that didn't happen, but yeah. that was the big concern. I didn't know that. And the big argument against that, which is absolutely ridiculous, is essentially, well, no, what will happen is we'll move into Texas, we'll start farming, we'll bring the slaves with us, eventually the fields will run dry, and then so we'll have to give them their freedom and then there won't be any work, so they'll just go south to Mexico, hmm. and then we'll be rid of them. And that was legitimately people's idea on how to end slavery. Wow. Yeah. Or send them to Liberia. Yeah, well, that was... Yeah, that was Monroe. Monroe. And Madison, too, I think, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah, a little yeah. bit. We're coming up to the 1824 presidential election. Kids, strap in. It's going to be a bumpy ride. Did uh, he like exercising at all? He did. We're going to talk about that in a bit. <laughs> okay. Hang on to that. He loved cardio. Loved that early morning cardio. Anyway, side note, spoiler alert, he loses this election. And we're going to take a quick break and we'll discuss why and and actually how he ended up winning the presidency by losing it. So we'll be right back. You're listening to the Presequential Podcast. Whether you're just starting out, well on your way to living your dream, or eagerly approaching retirement, make sure you're financially prepared to achieve a lifetime of goals. Zach Cerruti 
Rob Novotny and their team at Northwestern Mutual can help you reach them with a personalized financial plan. They apply time-tested strategies, providing education and expert advice to help you make decisions based on your priorities. As your circumstances and priorities change over time, they will work with you to revise your plan so you can meet each of life's challenges head-on and celebrate your accomplishments along the way. Zach and Rob and their team at Northwestern Mutual will be able to unpack ideas that can leave you and your family well-planned. To learn more, visit the link in our show notes or email Rob at robert.novotny at nm.com. That's robert.novotny at nm.com. And we're back. Welcome to the Presidential Podcast. We're not that kind of show. Sorry, I know. Uh, As the 1824 election season approached, Quincy was seen as Monroe's likely successor, although Henry Clay, John Calhoun, and William Crawford appear to be his opposition. And he was not the most charismatic guy, though they were. He was highly respected, though, and he was also the only Northerner in the race, so he had that going for him. Quincy wanted Jackson as his vice presidential candidate, but Jackson decided, "Eh, I'm going to run instead. So he's now running for president uh, on the appeal of his national renown as the hero of the Battle of New Orleans. Uh, Adams was popular in New England. Clay and Jackson were very strong in the West, and Jackson and Crawford competed for the South. Well, Jackson goes on and wins 99 of the 261 electoral votes, most of them from slaveholding states. Quincy wins 84, Crawford wins 41, and Clay takes 37. Calhoun won the majority of the electoral votes for vice president. Now, with no distinct winner electorally, which I think is the only time in my life I've used that as a Adverb. The House would decide the winner among the top three electoral vote winners. Okay, so under the terms of the 12th Amendment, it goes to the House. Clay has the lease, so he's gone. Bye, Felicia. Adams knows that his victory would be contingent upon Clay's heavy influence in the House. Clay saw Jackson, though, as a dangerous demagogue and didn't want to support Crawford, who had some pretty bad health issues. So Clay and Adams meet up. Clay promises, I'm going to support you in the House election. Adams also meets with Federalists like Daniel Webster and promises, hey, I'm not going to deny any governmental positions to your party. So Adams wins on the first ballot in the House, winning 13 of the 24 state delegations. He becomes president without winning either the popular or the electoral majority, and now Jackson's camp is furious, deeming the victory a corrupt bargain. Teaser alert, this is the same term that we will hear about later in Rutherford B. Hayes' election of 1876 and Gerald Ford's pardoning of Nixon in 1974. But until then, he's president now, whether you like it or not. He was really good at playing both sides there. Because he he basically had convinced Clay, like, no, I got you. Yeah, I got you. And then he convinced Webster, like, I got you too. Yeah. And so they went and convinced their states and some other states. First ballot. That's pretty incredible. And really quickly, Jackson was like, oh, I see what's happening here. Yes. Yes. Clay's biggest mistake was accepting Secretary of State. Hmm. Because everybody thought that Quincy promised Clay Secretary of State to get the votes. And because they thought that, whether or not it was true, which is arguable, probably true. Yeah. If he were to accept Secretary of State, then it proves that it's true, essentially, Hmm. in their eyes. So because he did that, it killed his chances of presidency, even though he would run for the next 150 years, it feels like. (laughs) 
Like, yeah, because Secretary of State, as it is today sometimes, is is seen as sort of a clear pathway. Well, back then, it was the yeah, pathway. Yeah, like, that's the next people step. People thought that nobody wanted to be vice president because they thought Secretary of State was the way. And mm. we'll get into that being an issue, that thought process being yes. an issue uh, when the vice president first has to become president. But while we're talking about vice presidents, mm. uh, let's bring in the expert, Russ. Russ, how you doing? Blaine, Ryan, I'm great. <laughs> Glad to have you here, as always, Russ. Thank you. So, so John Calhoun? John Caldwell Calhoun. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. That's a fancy middle name. John C. Calhoun. Mm. Before he was vice president, he was a representative from South Carolina. A little tidbit, since we're talking about uh, cousins and marriage. Oh, please. Mm-hmm. Sure. <laughs> he did marry his first cousin once removed, which is, from what I've learned, the daughter in this case oh boy of someone's first cousin oh boy Mm -hmm. shocking 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 Uh, her name was florid calhoun (laughs) oh my that's spelled like florida with an e instead of an a i hope her her middle name started with an a florid florid ann calhoun oh funny our last names are the same Yeah. How's that work out? It's easy. It's easy for paperwork. Oh, gosh. Mm-hmm. Wait thought, a second. You're a Calhoun, too? Hold he, on. He thought he secured the wedding during Louisiana, <laughs> but it turned out it wasn't true. <laughs> Continue, Never Russ. thought you'd hear a Louisiana purchase joke. <laughs> <laughs> I went there. Still haven't. Oh, gosh. So as a representative from South Carolina, yeah. at the time, he was a nationalist. He okay. was high tariffs, national bank, infrastructure, a white taxes. nationalist? No. Well, uh, wasn't he? <laughs> and all of our South Carolina listeners. This is true. Are well, gone. to that point, he was known as the father of the Civil War. Wow. Yeah. By whom? I stand by my statement. <laughs> yes. We'll you find mean the that War out. of Northern Aggression? <laughs> Indeed. Oh, gosh. To the point where Calhoun was part of the Warhawk for the War of 1812. Okay. So that was uh, with Clay and Calhoun and one other gentleman. One other guy. Mm-hmm, yeah. Who were pushing for military aggression and mm-hmm. led to the War of 1812. Which... Wasn't it Webster? I want to say it might have been. It well, wasn't he was Webster. a Federalist, though. It wasn't Webster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was, yeah, yeah, I'll look it up. It was someone I didn't write down. Forever lost to history. The <laughs> yeah. third Warhawk. <laughs> <laughs> but because he was a Warhawk, uh, among other reasons... He was made Monroe's Secretary of War. Okay. So that's when Calhoun and Quincy kind of buddied up at that time. Mm. They were, at that time, they were friends. Slowly that faded. Uh, They did grow apart due to contrasting views on the Missouri Compromise. Mm. He was very much pro-slavery. Yeah, shocker there. Yeah, so the other view of it. And as you said, in 1824, he ran for VP basically unopposed. And at the time, you did not have to be on the same ticket. So he was basically nominated for vice president and Adams would have been fine with him. And Jackson would have been fine with him as well. Well, it turns out yeah, he yeah. was. Wow. Exactly. Because we're going to talk some more about Absolutely. John Calhoun Gosh. in two weeks. Oh my God. Yeah. He, he is <laughs> terrifying to look at. If you were pulling up a Google image search of John oh, C. Calhoun. Oh my God. You would find... A crypt keeper? You know Tales yeah. from the Crypt? Yeah. Like, put skin on that guy. Gosh. That's what he looks like. And he doesn't have a cowboy mustache like Tombstone that I thought he would by the name. <laughs> uh, He's called the Cast Iron Man. Yeah. Gosh. Because he never was... No one knew how to wash him. <laughs> 
<laughs> can I can I put John C. Calhoun in the dishwasher? <laughs> they were uh, like, just put some salt water and soak him for a while. Season it. You gotta season it. He was on Quincy's side until the corrupt bargain that okay. you just talked about, and then he quickly jumped over. So to until day one. Basically, day one. <laughs> up until day one. Yeah. Hey, man, I got your back. I didn't know what I was signing up for. Yeah. And then at that point, he basically, everything he did as a vice president was to the favor of Jackson, Jackson. versus Adams. So, so he was a real Jefferson. Yeah. I he learned that to, from you. Yeah, how about that? <laughs> he got to appoint the head of Senate committees, 15 of them, foreign relations, finance, military affairs among them. And he chose individuals that were all on the Jackson side versus on the Adams side. So So he's playing the long game. Completely. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, towards the end, he just worked with Van Buren to get Jackson in his presence. I'm sweating from the view of John Calhoun. Yeah. I could see why it's so startling. I actually saw his his tomb in uh, I can't imagine he looks a lot different now. Man. Yeah. Although, Russ, you were saying he had a statue that was recently removed. Yeah, I did learn that recently in 2020, Yeah, he did have a statue, John hmm. Calhoun statue in Charleston that was moved from its prominent place hmm. uh, in Charleston to the... Was that before coronavirus? <laughs> I wonder if moving the statue of that terrifying looking human is what caused everything. Yeah. It's like opening the, an Egyptian tomb. <gasps> like, yeah. Well, I can't wait to learn more about him. In two weeks. I can't. I'm going to dream about that. <laughs> I'll send it to you after we record. Oh, my gosh. Russ, as always, thank you yeah, for thanks, educating Russ. not just us, but our listeners about yeah. the vice presidents. Absolutely. Thank Very you. important. Russ wow. Lifka, everybody. Wow. The Crypt Keeper. Oh, man. John C. Calhoun. You were, you were frightening. He's sworn in on March 4th, 1825, John Quincy, that is, and takes the oath of office on a book of constitutional law. After being... Congratulated by Jackson with his left hand because he didn't deserve the respect of his right hand. I didn't know that. Yeah, I thought it was because he had someone's like lady on his no. on his arm. No, because he addressed it immediately. He he even said something wow. about it while he was shaking hands. He was like, "You don't deserve the good hand." It wasn't. That's I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> the good hand. <laughs> yeah. It had oh something to do with like you made some sort of. Uh, left deal or something mm. like that. I don't remember the exact quote. That's a whole other conversation about why left-handed people Actually, were seen as lesser than. Well, yeah. yeah, sorry. I don't want to get canceled. Um, Gosh. Yeah, it was the era of good feelings, right? He said, yeah. I give you my left hand for the right, as you see, is devoted to the fair. I hope you are very well, sir. Wow. Subtext. I hate you. Yeah. And I'm going to become president after you if I can. Yeah. All right, well, in his inaugural address, he pushes for this really elaborate program of internal improvements on roads, canals, ports. He wants to create a national university, a naval academy, an astronomical observatory, and the creation of the Department of the Interior. He really did like space. The final frontier. Yeah, astronaut pens, man. <laughs> Maybe that's why. He was like, mm. there's got to be a way to make a pen that mm. you can write in we'll the call rain. Them- astronauts yeah right in the rain he did a lot of busy work he did now granted it was at a time and this happened for a few president for quite a few presidents after him where literally anyone could walk up to the white house yeah and be granted a meeting with the president and the majority of them asked for jobs Hmm. and that had to have been maddening like yeah you're the leader 
well, I guess they probably wouldn't have referred to him as that at the time. You're the president of the United States, and just Joe Schmo off the street can yeah. be like, you need a secretary? <laughs> like, you want me to plant some roses in the garden? Do you have a rose garden yet? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's how it this happens. This place really needs a yeah. rose garden. I've got this idea of a rectangle <laughs> right over there. I'm the rose family. <laughs> yeah. i got a ton of sons. We'll plant roses for you. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. One day you're going to need to get 10,000 steps a day, and I've got just the idea on how to get there. <laughs> you got cherry blossoms? I got those, too. Just pulls out his coat, and it's watches. <laughs> An early prototype of a Fitbit. Just, like, random blood spots on his shirt from all the rose thorns poking him in the chest. <laughs> oh, gosh. So, oh my gosh, eventful presidency? Um, Short. Very short. He's a single-termer. He had very few supporters in Congress. In an era of double term all around right yeah only he and his dad up to that point are single termers yeah okay family tradition (laughs) uh supporters in congress and and nationally who like jackson become known as jackson men and they are beginning to call themselves democrats at that point supporters of adams begin calling themselves national republicans In 1828, Van Buren, calhoun and other crawford supporters start to throw their support behind jackson which Real quick, just as an aside. Go ahead. The National Republicans is not where the Republican Party came from. Correct. That's later in Lincoln's presidency? Right before, right before. the Whigs yeah. fractionalized the whole thing. Yes. We'll get into it. We will. Uh, the 1828 election marked the first time in U.S. history that a presidential ticket composed of two Northerners, specifically Adams and Secretary of the Treasury Richard Rush, facing off against a presidential ticket composed of two Southerners. Jackson ends up winning 178 of the 261 electoral votes. It's just pretty much a landslide. 56% of the popular vote. Jackson won 50% of the popular vote in the free states, but 73% of the vote in the slave state. No future presidential candidate would match Jackson's proportion of the popular vote until Teddy Roosevelt's 1904 campaign, while Adams' loss made him the second one-term president. But of course, Richard Rush would rise to fame later in life by creating the subdivision i'm sorry what <laughs> it's a rush joke oh gosh you're talking about <laughs> gosh. you don't you're not a rush fan i mean i know of rush all right I, i'm not a huge rush fan. somebody's in their car right now laughing their ass off i like that blame guy <laughs> ryan seems There's like a one, turd one of our Tens of followers. And the units of followers. <laughs> Shortly after leaving office, so he loses to Jackson. April 1829, Quincy's son George Washington Adams commits suicide after jumping from the steamship Benjamin Franklin during passage from Boston to D.C. So he loses, and then his son, who, if you remember, came over... Born after... on the 4th of July. Yeah. Well, I, I'm pretty sure that was... I know one of his sons hmm. was born on the 4th of July. I didn't know sure that. That's cool. His other son, in 1828 was delivering some papers to the White House, I believe, in that time period between when he lost and when he was no longer okay. president. And your boy, Russell Jarvis, ran up and sucker punched him. That's right. <laughs> Russell Jarvis just punches him in the Capitol building, doesn't yeah, he, or somewhere yeah. around there? Yeah, yeah. He's just delivering papers, just going Gosh. about his business, like taking some papers to dad, and this dude just... <laughs> yeah. Everybody has a plan so they get punched in the face. That's right, yeah. His plan was just to deliver some papers like this. I'm just bringing these to Bob. plan. Uh, Quincy, he grows bored in retirement. Shocker there. He successfully wins a seat in the house. But what did he do to cure his boredom? He wrote. 
Oh, and you know did. what he wrote? He wrote a romantic epic <laughs> called right. Dermot McMurrow. I forgot about this. <laughs> it's like an epic poem about a, some yes. Scottish dude. Yes. It is probably my oh, favorite thing so about John Quincy Adams. I totally forgot about it's this. It's a poem set in medieval Ireland, Ireland. And he was like, I'm not president. I mm. don't know what to do. Let's see. I'm supposed to go farm. That's Gosh. what everyone else does. So much laundry around here. Yeah. I need to. This is before the potato famine. Oh, man. Dermot McMurrow. McSteamy, if you ask me. Yeah. Yeah. That's so great. I forgot that he wrote an epic poem. So he runs for Congress. He does. But then he was in the very first train accident with fatalities. I also forgot this. Blaine, you are bringing back so many juicy nuggets of James Traub's militant spirit biography on John Quincy Adams. I mean, I understand my role in this podcast. I love it. So... Trains were becoming a thing, mm. and up until that point, people were a little nervous, but like he wanted to embrace technology. He wanted to be able to show like this is the wave of the future. So he's in the first train accident with fatalities. Another person on that train was Cornelius Vanderbilt, yes, who broke his leg, completely vowed to never ride on a train again, and then became a railroad mogul. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I said I wouldn't ride it. Yeah, he's like, I'm, I'll definitely hire some people to put some tracks down. <laughs> yeah, Cornelius Vanderbilt. Wow. What a name. That's a great Man. name. Yeah. Anderson is... Cooper's like great great grandfather or yeah. something like that. That reminds me, I have a soldier and his first name is T. Like why why do you have a soldier? Tell the tell the good people in there. I'm an officer in the National Guard. Mm. I have a soldier who his name is T. Randolph Kite. Okay. And as the first time I saw that guy's name, I was like, you own a railroad? <laughs> like, that was my first thought. I was like, yeah. where's... I wanted to go find one wow. of his NCOs and be like, I need you to tell that person that he needs to keep a monocle <laughs> in his pocket at all times. <laughs> like, his first name is T. That's it? That, yeah, the letter T. It's, wow, that's weird. Yeah. So people like that still exist. Gosh. Railroad magnets. Oh, my gosh. So he's, he's bored in retirement. He, write, he writes an Irish epic novel. He almost dies along with Connie Vanderbilt. And he then goes and later serves for 17 years in Congress. Nine terms. He becomes affiliated with the Anti-Masonic Party, the first third party in the U.S. During Jackson's administrations, he becomes an influential player in the House in the nullification crisis between South Carolina and the federal government. And he also, at that point, is like, yo, the Southern influence on the federal government is getting out of control yeah he claimed to be an anti-abolitionist but kind of sort of started the abolitionist movement like the real to get it going abolitionist movement because he was against slavery yes as his dad was he also like his dad was kind of thought well we can't just throw it away Mm. and they used to use really terrible terms to justify things like involuntary servitude mm. like you read the a peculiar term like, institution i you think read is what a they term called it. like involuntary servitude yeah. and you're like you're doing a lot of mental gymnastics yeah. to get there does this help you sleep better at night yeah. to call it this yeah it's it must be easy in boston where you don't have to see it right every day mm. you know what i mean yeah and i know that we've talked we're not gonna you know super dive into railroading these guys on this type of thing good bring back um, of the of the yeah the but it, it doesn't make it any less terrible i mean it's i don't know Let's go into that, though, a little bit about the slavery issue, because in 1841, Quincy joins the case the United States versus the Amistad in the Supreme Court. A longtime opponent of slavery, like you just talked about, he goes before the Supreme Court on behalf of African slaves who have revolted and seized the Spanish ship 
Amistad. Great movie, by the way. Let's yeah, let's tell the story a little bit. Okay, so go ahead. France, correct? There yes. were French. It was a French ship went to Africa, kidnapped a group of people, bound them, put them on the ship. One of the Africans that was kidnapped spoke the same language as a, the cook, I believe. Okay, is that correct? Yeah, and his name—he had one name, and it started with a C, and I can't remember what it is. Let me so try to pull it up. He, no one, obviously they—they've been kidnapped. They don't know what's happening. They've been bound. They're on a boat. Probably a pretty good chance it's the first time some of them even seen a boat. So they're very confused. The guy figures out from the cook what's happening, Mm. that they're going to be taken across the Atlantic Ocean and sold into slavery, and explains it to the rest of the kidnappees. Correct. They revolt. was his name. What is it? Cinque, I believe. C-I-N-Q-U-E with a little accente over the E. Cinque. So they revolt. Yes. And take the ship over. They tell the captain of the... Well, they leave like one guy alive or two guys alive. I'm the captain now. And yeah, essentially. So while they're doing other things, the guy that's driving the boat decides to pull... Well, they they get him to agree to take them back to Africa. While they're busy doing something else, he pulls a fast one on them, turns the boat around while they're not paying attention. (laughs) And it ends up landing, I believe, somewhere in like the Maryland, Delaware area. Okay, He gets back towards it because he was trying to go to the bahamas where it was technically still kind of sort of legal yeah so the united states had passed the anti-slave trade because in all their infinite wisdom they were like well if we don't bring any more slaves here it'll eventually get rid of itself that was a hard eye roll that you just heard um (laughs) so so they land the guys that were driving the boat i believe there were only two alive at the time basically claimed that the african people that had been kidnapped were pirates because they Hmm. had overtaken the boat so that actual so france wanted to extradite all of the people that had been kidnapped to be able to charge them with piracy Wow! and the court case that john quincy adams defended to the supreme court yes was effectively no they can't possibly be pirates because they were put they don't have an ocean Yeah, ah, dang it. That's <laughs> they all, no eye patches. No parrots to be yeah. seen, Your Honor. I rest my case. They were like, they can't possibly be pirates because they weren't willingly right. put on the boat. They weren't even willingly in the ocean. Correct. They only overtook the boat to overtake the kidnappers. So not only should they not be extradited to be tried as pirates, they should be able to go back home yes. to be free. Let them go. Where they stink and live, where they were stolen from. Yes. Sorry. I got That's okay. up there. By the way, Amistad, I remember seeing... I feel like that's a thing you should be fired up about. Like, that's a ridiculous thing for them to even have taken to the courts. Right. They were pirates. They took our boat. Like, yeah, because you put them on the boat without, like, their consent. Yes, correct. You kidnapped them. Well, he speaks for four hours before the Supreme Court on February 24th, 1841. His argument ends up succeeding. The court ruled that the Africans were free and they returned to their homes. This was an interesting parallel that I caught that while I was cutting the grass today before we were recording, I thought it was not the most popular thing to do for John Quincy Adams to defend these enslaved people, Mm -hmm. okay? And I started thinking, this sounds oddly familiar, where in his narrative, his dad, when he was maybe, let's say, three to six years old, however, a young kid in a very formative space. Yeah, three years old, I think. Yeah. His dad is defending the seven, eight, I can't really remember, British soldiers, British officers 
who are charged with murder. Mm-hmm. John Adams, uh, dad, knows how unpopular this decision is going to be, yet he does. He knows what's on the line. He says, my family's reputation, my political, my all my career aspirations are on the line here if I take this case. But he ends up winning. John Quincy Adams does the exact same thing however many years later. This is 1841. Facts are stubborn things. Mm. I mean, just imagine, let's say someone got kidnapped in the United States. They overtook their kidnapper in a car. Yeah. And then they had to go to court for stealing the car. Mm. That's effectively what, like, in in, in case I wasn't clear enough. Yeah, you're a car thief. In case I wasn't clear enough in explaining this case, Mm. that is the direct parallel to today, Mm. is if you got kidnapped, you were able to get free of your whatever bonds you were in and overtook the person driving the car. And then you went to court for stealing the car. That's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. Yeah. But kudos to Quincy. Seriously. For putting his reputation. I mean, at that point, he's, you he's could getting argue up there there's not much of a reputation. I mean, like his reputation is already pretty yeah. well set. He, it would be really easy for him to take a back seat and be like, look, I was a president. I yeah. Know. Right. He he actually was the only, this is a little known fact, I'm jumping ahead to the little known fact part. Mm-hmm. He is the only former president to have served in the House. There was one other president who served in the Senate after his term. Do you know who it was? No. He was on one of the bookends of Abraham Lincoln. So, well, then it's either Johnson or Buchanan. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to guess that it was Buchanan it was because Johnson. Johnson was impeached. Yeah, it was Andrew Johnson. Oh. He served in the Senate after he was president. Well, it's one of the things that I have to say that I admire about Quincy. Yeah. Because I admire his moral compass. Hmm. He's the only president, and I don't think we actually touched on this. Go ahead. He's the only president in history that ran without a party. He did. You're right. It he shifted a lot. I mean, he he started Federalist. He went, what was it, National Republican. He went Whig. He went anti, anti-Masonic, went anti-slavery. And I know that we talked about Monroe being nonpartisan, but, I, but he would switch parties because of what he thought was best for the country mm-hmm. rather than what he thought was best for a party. Mm. And we're going to get into a section of the presidents here relatively soon where their entire goal is party politics and doing yeah. things to strengthen the party. Well, not soon after. I mean, gosh, are you, are you talking like Van Buren? Van Buren, yeah. uh, Pierce, Buchanan to an extent. They got to office and basically thought, how can I strengthen the party now? Mm. And they focused all of their thoughts on that rather yeah. than what's the best for the what's country. What's the best for the country? There are other presidents that I think in this same vein as what Quincy was doing did things to what they thought. Jackson's a good example. We'll talk about it next episode. He did things that he thought were what the people wanted. Yes. Were what were in the best interest of the country, whether or not they were actually, we'll talk about in the next episode. But I think Quincy really had this moral compass of this is what the right thing to do is. So Mm. I should do this. Yeah. And that's why he took the case. Yeah. I think he was just from a very young age drilled with this idea of, You've got a destiny to fulfill. Integrity is everything in life. Which sucks, well, how he became yeah. president. Because it goes against everything else. And yeah. It almost overshadows everything else. Mm-hmm. It's almost like his the height of his impact and legacy, I would say, 
we're, we're maybe jumping a little bit ahead because yeah. we got to talk about how he died, which was an amazing, uh-huh. I mean, the, the circumstances surrounding his death were pretty yeah. amazing when I learned about pretty him. Pretty fitting. He really, when do you think he peaked? Secretary of State? Earlier than that? Dip, I mean, diplomat? Because presidency was not really the highlight of, of Quincy's playbook. Probably when he brought those hunting dogs back. So. <laughs> Do you think he named him? Maybe it was when he was playing the flute at Harvard. Um, <laughs> Look what I can do. I don't know, man. Like, anyway, I like, here's Wonderwall. I like. The... <laughs> uh, I knew today was going to be the day that you were going to throw it back to me. <laughs> Young Quincy seems charming. What is his? The peak? way he That's plays a good Oasis. question. Why don't we take a break? Okay, and then we'll talk about his peak because I want to take some time to chew on that marinate. Okay. And we're going to get another Sam Adams winter lager. And yes. we're going to come back. We're going to talk about his legacy, his death, mm-hmm. and some little-known facts about John Quincy Adams, president number six. You're listening to the Presequential Podcast. We'll be right back. Facing the transition out of the military is rarely easy. It doesn't help that the staggering number of options you're faced with can be overwhelming. But there's a light at the end of that tunnel for all veterans. And that light shines brightest here in Indiana. Lucrative careers in fast-growing industries are plentiful. Housing costs are amongst the lowest in the nation. And you can live in the country while being less than an hour from a world-class city. At InVets, we're showing veterans how to translate the valuable skills they've learned to the civilian world while connecting them with careers they can be proud of so they can lead fulfilling, purposeful lives. Go to InVets, that's I-N-V-E-T-S dot org. Create a profile to learn more about Indiana communities, browse the current open job openings in these communities, and receive your free shirt. That's InVets, I-N-V-E-T-S dot org. Hey, welcome back to the Presequential Podcast. We're so glad that you're joining us today. Blaine, uh, John Quincy Adams was largely against Martin Van Buren when he was in the House. He was optimistic about William Henry Harrison's very short-lived administration. He was against Tyler and loathed Polk, whom he dissented against in the vote. Say again. Loathed Polk. Polk. Okay, you said Polk. Did I say Polk? You said Polk. I am not big on silent L's. I don't do well with this. But how, how do you say the word silent L? How do you say the word C A L M? Calm. Calm. How do you say P O L K A? Polka. Mm. How do you say F O L K? Folk. You say folk music? Yeah. You say wait, you say folk music? Folk music. I don't know if we can have a podcast after this. I might have to stop. I need to write my diary. 39 about this. presidents. <laughs> That's right. <Just> stop. <laughs> Listen, he loathed Pohl. Yeah. He dissented against the vote for the Mexican War, which he ardently deposed. He RBG'd it. He did, until his death in 1848. Listen to this. February 21st, 1848. The House of Representatives is discussing the matter of honoring Army officers who served in the Mexican-American War. Adams had been a vehement critic of the war. As Congressman rose up to say... I, in favor of the measure, John Quincy Adams instead yells no, and immediately after, he collapses, having suffered a massive cerebral hemorrhage. Two days later, on February 23rd, he dies at 7.20 p.m. with his wife, Louisa, at his side in the speaker's room inside the Capitol in D.C. His only living child, Charles Francis, did not arrive in time to see his father alive. 
Quincy's last words were, quote, This is the last of earth. I am content, end quote. Among those present for his death was a first-term young congressman named Abraham Lincoln, a freshman representative from the state of Illinois. A Whig, Mm -hmm. yes. Whig. A Whig. I like that element of what we're doing as we're learning about these presidents and talking about them. You said there was a word for it. What's that? For when uh, shows up early, we had breakfast. You oh, told yes. me about the word. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a theological term, but it's yeah. called a theophany. Yeah. It's like a foreshadowing of sorts. A theophany. A theophany. I'll but, remember that. But Lincoln is in John Quincy Adams' story and vice versa. I mean, Lincoln at this point, he's a young guy. He's heard John Quincy Adams speak about the horror of slavery. Mm-hmm. And as a young guy, I just love how these stories interweave themselves and overlap. You know, obviously, there was Jackson was at Washington's farewell address. Yeah. And he was the only person. He was in his first term in Congress from the state of Tennessee. He was the only congressman not to stand mm-hmm. when Washington gave his farewell address. I just love seeing how they're in the story, but the spotlight is not on them yet. Right. I just love that element of it. Well, and the spotlight probably, we wouldn't have known that he was the only person that didn't stand if he didn't become president, probably. Yeah, maybe his becoming president maybe made that more of a, a highlight in that. Let's talk a little bit about John Quincy Adams' legacy, shall we? He put American foreign service and diplomacy on the map. He propelled... <sighs> yeah, I mean, he grew up in it. To say the least. Yeah. Your literally. dad is a founding father, and you're the... I mean, his his portrait is in... Well, not only is it in the White House, but it's at the State Department. There are rooms at the State Department where it's like, if you're going to receive like a diplomatic guest from another country, it's in the John Quincy Adams room at the State Department. He propelled Andrew Jackson to the presidency. He sure did. Man, did he propel him. So he's indirectly responsible for the Trail of Tears. We're going to dive into that in episode seven. (laughs) Boy, are we. John Quincy Adams is generally ranked in the top 20 of the Mm -hmm. presidents. He's usually around the bottom of that. Like he's been ranked 19th, 21st. He was really more influential as a secretary of state and even before that as a foreign minister and ambassador. Uh, If you've ever ridden a train, you have John Quincy Adams to thank, as his administration provided money and land to the construction of the first passenger railroad, the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad, that opened in 1830. Thanks, Monopoly. The B&O. Hey, if you've ever played Monopoly... Yeah. Think about John Quincy Adams. Yeah. And Cornelius's broken leg. Connie. He's currently ranked 21st. Out of 45. Yeah, out of 44. 44. They don't okay. usually... Re- C- so C-SPAN is the one I usually check. I would say by most accounts, people can agree that they're relatively... Boring? Uh, yeah, boring, <laughs> middle of the road, probably not fake news. And they do this comprehensive presidential yes. ranking right. every uh, roughly five years. Mm-hmm. So the last one was done in 2017. Yeah. And President Obama had moved into the top 20, which is he was one of the very few presidents that ever jumped that high okay. directly after his term. But that's why... Quincy moved it in the 21st. Oh. So to your point, he was in that bottom 20 yeah. tier, but now he's 21st. Okay. If you've ever been to the Smithsonian Institute in D.C., yeah. you also have John Quincy Adams to thank because he successfully persuaded Congress to preserve a gift to the federal government by British scientist James Smithson for an institution of science and learning. Congress established it in 1846, two years before JQA's death. 
And the coolest Smithsonian is the Air and Space Museum. Yes. Oh, man, is it cool? Astronaut pens. Astronaut pens. Keep coming. It all comes back. It's yeah. I mean, he he really liked astronomical things. He did. Like, Loved it. wasn't he the one that really pushed to try to get a telescope? Yes, he did. Yeah, he did a lot of things that Congress was like, "Dude, why do you even want that? We're not behind that at all." Yeah, and then he just put out that meme and it was like aliens. <laughs> aliens. Let me let me tell you something about UFOs. <laughs> he was, he was Mom original. and I used to write letters about this. Yeah, the guy that founded the History Channel was like, "I've been studying Quincy Adams, and I think <laughs> we need more aliens." You want to dive into some little-known facts here? Well, let's talk a little bit. I want to talk a little bit about his legacy. I thought okay. that his death was one of the more fitting deaths of the presidents. How so? I mean, he was the working man's president. Like, the dude worked his butt off, went from the presidency, didn't want to retire to be a farmer like every other president before him, went right back into civil service. It seemed, from what I read, yeah. militant spirit, that he was a true civil servant. He didn't yeah. see his job as uh, like he was in charge of the people. He understood that the people were in charge yes. of him and he was a servant to them. Yeah. And he was there to represent them. And so to be to go back and to take a lesser job. Hmm. I mean. Yeah, not just go to the Senate. I mean, you're going to the House at this point. Yeah. Like that shows very little ego. Yeah. And for him to take a lesser job because he thought it was important, when he was asked to go back and do it, he was like, well, I won't run because that's beneath me. But like, if you pick me, I'll go. Right. Right. So like, there was a little bit there. He went back and he did things like, I mean, even as a senator, he went another couple rungs down to defend people on the Amistad, people that he really didn't have to care about. Right. Right. Like, it would have been really easy for him to be like, nah. Sucks for them. Nah, I'm good. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. he really cared. He did. And I I really like that about it. Because like we talked about at the open, like, I didn't know anything about him besides his dad was president. I always just kind of assumed it was nepotism. Learned a little bit about him in previous presidents. So kind of knew going into the book that it wasn't just nepotism. Yeah. But I, I just, I was pretty impressed by his overall demeanor, moral compass, like I said. Yeah. And the way that he kind of conducted himself and... Approach the presidency. Not very impressed by his parenting or his right. husbanding. Right. He was a pretty terrible husband and a yeah. pretty terrible parent. Yeah. Which was weird because his dad was the opposite of that. His dad was a really great father and yeah. a really good husband. Now, granted, he ended up paying it forward because his dad would have died completely poor. Correct. Like the president's preceding him if he hadn't saved the family farm literally saved the farm bought it for his parents they ended up dying with money because he saved them because of jqa i actually think he's the first president up till now of the previous five that died with money Hmm. i think all the other five died penniless yeah land rich and cash poor well yeah i mean they're virginia planners Uh uh-huh yeah well outside of his dad but even his dad the only reason he had anything is because quincy saved it Huh. That's why it, way earlier I made the comment that he was financially free of his parents, yes. but they were not financially free of him. Uh, I get it now. Yeah. Yeah, that joke kind of sailed over my head when you're... It wasn't a joke, but you know what I it mean. It wasn't. <laughs> it's not a joke at all. Um, Financial solvency is not a yeah. joke. So I think legacy-wise, like he's one of the ones that I I walked away and I was like, man, that, I definitely yeah. didn't i mean he still hasn't overtaken my number one teddy yeah yeah theodore i think for me it was it was good to learn about 
John Quincy Adams. I didn't know a ton about him. I liked his dad. I think I still like his dad better from a heart level. But I, I mean, l- you're a father. That's true. There, there is something that did take away from that as a father that I was like, man, you suck at that. Yeah. You know what we didn't talk about? What did we not we talk? Led it to before. Break? Oh my gosh! Hold on, I know exactly where you're going with this. Yeah. His early did. morning cardio workouts. Swimming. <laughs> this guy loves swimming. He loved to swim. So Naked. He, well. Sometimes. Yeah. I don't even remember how he found out about swimming. Well, I mean, like, I'm sure it was all, it's always kind of existed in the ether, but as an exercise. Yes. Um, he didn't he have LA fitness when, like, in, the, in the 1830. Potomac. He would go to the Potomac and start swimming, yeah. and he was like, man, I think there's something to this. Gosh. So he became so jazzed about it. Mm, that jazz he didn't decided... come for about another 100 years, but I know <laughs> Well, no, going. he had the flute. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> He had the flute. Yeah. A recorder. That's so great. He became so obsessed with swimming that he thought that it should be in the curriculum throughout the education system throughout the country. Mm. And he would do different things and he would like tweak his workouts. Yeah. One time he started swimming with pants on. Okay, let's see like, how this goes. Yep, the children need to do this. Mm, this let's put that in the This creek. is not a safety hazard at all. And then he was like, what if I stream, swim against the current? Yep, mm. don't, that's harder. Yep, that's children harder. should do that too. Right. <laughs> he, he just kept adding these things to yeah. this like PE curriculum that he came up with. <laughs> like, and he, but he did. He got up to two hours a day of yeah, swimming. Just swimming. That's ridiculous. That guy must have been cut. He was an Iron Man. Like, oh, man. He, he was the Michael Phelps of his time. Yes. John Quincy Adams just out there swimming naked in the Potomac. Yeah. I'm glad that we didn't forget about that. Thanks, Gosh. Russ. Thank you, Russ. He almost died one time. He almost drowned because he was out there for so long going against the current, right? Yeah. And like <laughs> random people saw him. And that was when he was hey, swimming naked. President? <laughs> and he was swimming naked. And he was like, can you just turn around real quick? It's a little cold here <laughs> this morning in the Potomac. Yeah, he was a big, big swimmer. I guess that's a good segue into little-known facts. Oh my gosh, I can't wait to get into him. Here we go. These are your little-known facts about John Quincy Adams, president number six. He was the first of two presidents whose father was also president, the the other, of course, being... W. George W. Bush. Both he and his dad also only served one term, as we shared. He was the first president to wear his hair short. Not tied back in a queue like many of his predecessors. Probably because it wasn't long and it was going quick. Yeah. It's like, I, I, this whole queue thing is no longer in fashion. He's like, yeah, actually, nobody likes long hair. And they're like, whatever, <laughs> whatever. I read about it at GQ. Yeah. No one likes these. He also sported long trousers, not knee breeches. He was a pantsman. In the pool. In the pool. Oh my gosh. Okay, Marquis de Lafayette. Uh, the Lancelot of the Revolutionary set. That took a long time to get the Hamilton drink. reference. Yeah, in. drink. Yeah. We, we have a running gag that if you make a Hamilton reference, you have to drink. Marquis de Lafayette gave him a, <laughs> gave him a pet alligator. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what it was with Lafayette and animals. He's like, hey, by the way, before you go home. I like this guy. Take, I'm going to give him an animal. Take these hunting dogs to watch. So what's, oh man, I'm, could we create some sort of ranking system of mm. like, this is how much Lafayette liked you. Yeah. Like, <laughs> top of the list, seven right. hunting dogs. Right. Number 21, alligator. Give him, uh, what's that over there? It's a prehistoric dinosaur that's still around. 
give that to John Quincy. Yeah. What do you want to give Jefferson? He's like, you got any of those mammoth bones? I hear he likes those. <laughs> <laughs> well, he gives him a pet alligator, uh, which he kept in a bathtub in the White House East Room. <laughs> and apparently he would love it. It was named Taft. <laughs> <laughs> That's so great. He just kept He doesn't even know who Taft is. He's like, this is a good nickname. Yeah. I hope he called him Jaws Quincy Alligator. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to need a bigger tub. Oh my God, I love this. Yeah, apparently he would love it when people would would freak out seeing an alligator in the White House. He would love it. Oh my God. It's uh, it's been suggested that John Quincy Adams had the highest IQ of any president, estimated at one sixty-five. <laughs> That's funny. The <laughs> and the other son of a president may have been the lowest. <laughs> Stop! It's unfair. Sorry, you're probably uh, yeah. I just you can't you threw in a softball. Yeah. John Quincy Adams, though. He's a brainy. I mean, you read the 11-year-old letter. Of course he had the highest IQ. Yeah, can we just read that again? Hold on. What was it? Where was this? No, quote? let's not. Please, I, I just loved reading it. It was so fun. Hold on. I got to find it. It was, um, although I still have the mortification a few years hence to read a great deal of my childish nonsense, yet I shall have the pleasure and advantage of remarking the several steps by which I shall have advanced in taste, judgment, and knowledge. And then W's letter home was like, send beer money. <laughs> no states were added to the Union uh, while JQA was POTUS. Unlike his predecessor, Monroe, who had five new states come in while he was serving. He's the only president to serve in the House after his time in the office as president. We talked about Andrew Johnson, number 17, was the only former president to serve in the Senate. This was interesting. I thought his son Charles built the first presidential library. In mm-hmm. his father's honor in 1870. Guess how many books were in it? <laughs> 47. 14,000 books. Oh, yeah, duh. Okay. In 12 languages. Yeah. What are they? What are the 12 languages? I have no idea. Terrible note taking. <laughs> <laughs> Latin. Yeah, well, sure. Greek. Mm-hmm. French. Russian. English. Probably Prussian. Prussian. Was, uh, is that just basically German? Well, Germany didn't exist. I know, but is it? I mean, is there a Prussian language? There probably was. I would have to assume. Uh, how how willing are you to go on record and say that you think there was a Prussian language? I'm not willing to go on record over anything I say on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot. There's a lot in there. Many Twelve languages. Language. Twelve languages. Monrovian. Monrovian. <laughs> <laughs> Blaine, what would you ask JQA if you were uh, if you were having a beer with him? Why did you need to do the, what was the deal called? The weights and the measures? Oh, <laughs> Tell me. What How was the name of the alligator? <laughs> oh, Dafty? Will you play me a song on the flute? Those are my two questions. Will you play uh, me a song about an alligator on your flute? Oh, gosh, it's so great. He's just a yaz flautist. But if I had, like, a real conversation with yeah. him, I'd want to know, after we got past the alligator stuff, that's yeah. fascinating. Why, why did you feel like you needed to to make the deal to become president. Like mm. everything else about your life says. Yeah. Moral rectitude. Mm-hmm. Integrity. Yeah. Yeah. You lost. Like by not a small amount. Right. It would have been probably larger had there not been, what, six people running for office. Uh, four, I think. Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. So. I thought it was interesting that the house was like, all right, let's go with the top three. Yeah. Instead of the top two, 
uh, they had a lot of weird rules. Yeah. What about you? Uh, I think it would have been interesting to learn from him. What was it like to have John Adams as a dad? Well, it sounds like it was awesome. And also very hard. Just to live in that shadow, a very, very short shadow. But I guess that's all he knew, though, right? Very like short set shadow. Yeah. That just hit me. But I, but I guess that's all he knew. <laughs> like, at a young age, like, if all you know is John Adams is my dad, yeah, you kind of absorb a lot of that by osmosis. You have to, I would think. Mm-hmm. I would is think... It, can uh, you go ahead. read Dermot McMurrow? Can I? Well, I mean, is it out there? Is that it something we be. can find? Check it out on Amazon. If we find it, we're putting it in the show notes. Of all the Irish epics of the 1820s, 30s, man, it was it was a banger. <laughs> it's on Amazon. It slaps. Somewhere. Yeah. What was it called? Dermot with what? Dermot McMurrow. M A C M O R R. It would have been interesting to 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 ask him. Hey, at the end of your life, did you ever regret uh, letting your mom steamroll you about Mary Fraser? Well, at one point, she wrote, I think Jefferson, and asked. To give him a raise, like the she was a hel- she was a helicopter parent. She wrote it was either Jefferson or Madison. Okay, while he was in yeah. Europe somewhere, yeah, and was like, "You're not paying him enough. You should give my son a raise." He's written me six months ago about how like, much he makes. Imagine if he if this were today, he yeah. would be playing lacrosse. Oh, absolutely! And his mom would be asking yeah. for managers. Yeah. all over town. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Playing lacrosse. <laughs> yeah. Honey, get in the Escalade. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. This is ridiculous. They wouldn't take my coupon. It's been expired for only two months. I wasn't floored with John Quincy Adams as a president. I thought actually this book that's fair that we picked was very good. Yeah, uh, Militant Spirit by James Traub. I think it's a long read, but it's a good read. I didn't know much at all about John Quincy Adams before we dove into this. But I was pleasantly surprised to learn everything that he did for our country. I would completely agree with that. Well, thank you. <laughs> Do you have anything else to add, Blaine, about JQA? Uh, I don't think so. Okay. I think we touched on everything. Okay. Still, I still kind of want to know what Dermot McMurrow is all about. Dermot McMurrow. Uh, it's in a historical tale of 12th century and four cantos. Gosh, that's weird. That's so weird for him to be living in the 1800s and be like, just freshly out of office and be like, well, you know what I think I'm going to do? I'm going to learn about 12th century Ireland. Oh, he already knew about it. There's no way he just decided to learn about it. Yeah. Wow. It is $75 (laughs) if you can find it. (laughs) On Amazon? Currently unavailable. Gosh, just, (laughs) it's out of print. Well, I found... My Holy Grail. What's that? What do you mean? What? Well, you found your Holy Grail. That yeah, Dermot, Dermot McMurrah. McMurrah? Wasn't oh, Dermot Russ McMurrah in my best friend's wedding? No, he was the guy from the um, hospital show. No, hold on. Russ is, Russ is giving me the, the Dermot, Dermot Mulrooney. Dermot Mulrooney. Oh, that guy. That's who he was. <laughs> yeah. He's in my best friend's wedding. <laughs> yes, he is. Yes, 100% <laughs> right. Okay, we're, we have derailed. Probably, yeah. Not unlike the train that he was riding in that he almost died in. There it Corny is. Vanderbilt. <laughs> Connie. Uh, you mean Connie Vanderbilt, the guy who almost died? You guys, thank you for listening to the Presequential Podcast. Be sure to follow us on all the socials at Presequential. That's P R E S I Q. 
U-E-N-T-I-A-L, at Presequential. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, share it with a friend, and leave a review. Our next episode on President Andrew Jackson will be released on April 14th, 2021. Thank you so much for listening to the Presequential Podcast. 